0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the scanner studio today is Professor Bobby Donaldson of USC, and joining us from WUGA Studios in Athens is Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia. We're here to have a follow-up conversation to the events in June, the horror at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, and how things have rippled out across the country with regard to what is the South, Who are Southerners? What do they think? Symbols and the like. Gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good to be here. Bobby, you and I have had this conversation in many different ways, but symbols do matter. The Confederate battle flag that was placed by the Confederate monument on the State House grounds in 2000, it's come down, and some people have already approached me and say, you need to write a new chapter in South Carolina history. Do you think we're there yet?
1: Well, uh, my response is just wait a little bit, because uh, last time I was here, we had talked about this in anticipation uh, of the vote in this, the General Assembly, and the flag is uh, now down, uh, but the very same sentiments that I think were being debated and discussed the last time I was here, they, they continue I think it'll be important to understand why the flag has come down. I mean, This time last year, as we were preparing for a gubernatorial election, the incumbent candidate, Governor um, Nikki Haley, uh, was asking in a debate about the future of the flag. And we should remember that a year ago, there was no political momentum whatsoever in the State House that suggested that we would be at this point where we are now. Uh, in fact, she had said that no CEO of any corporation come to her to talk about the flag coming down, which is her response as to why it would probably remain. Then, of course, the events in Charleston compelled some important political decisions, and we should acknowledge that. But at the same time, the what I see as pronounced divisions, uh, different perspectives about the South and those values, those remain very hot topics for debate.
0: And this is really kind of one of Jim Cobb's Hobby horses. It's almost like people have rediscovered the American South as the other to point fingers, Jim.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it, I think it's it's really telling. Is I mean, without uh, minimizing at all the horrible tragedy in in Charleston, the that, uh, the immediate response nationwide to that was that it was it was uh, all about the South, whereas all these other. Uh, examples of of racially motivated or racially tense killings. Uh, I I don't think I've ever heard uh, uh, any reference to them as as being indicative of uh, the particular locale, if it was outside the South, or of of the situation in the nation as a whole. But I think the flag did, I mean, and does sort of serve as a proxy reminder to a lot of Americans elsewhere of the south as as uh, they recall it you know back in the massive resistance era or uh, or before and I think uh, governor Haley's move against it you know should not be uh, minimized in terms of its uh, its significance but you know as Bobby suggests and I certainly agree we shouldn't make it also mean more than it it does I mean the flag may be down but voter restrictions are are still up, and, uh, and you know any number of other measures that that are not going to uh, redound to the benefit of uh, minorities uh, in general in South Carolina. So, it's a case of getting a lot of stuff kind of heaped on a symbol, and sort of making the symbol uh, is uh, sort of like the uh, you know all the evil spirits sort of are cast out and into the into the flag and and then pulling the flag down seems to have sort of given the impression that we've had you know had something akin to a revolution
0: which is obviously not the case. No, we have not had a revolution. But for the record, South Carolina history was published in 1998 and I was asked many times when will the flag come off the state house and out of the chambers and I said not in my lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And after the 2000 compromise. And I think folks forget that a compromise was worked out and primarily by the African-Americans in the Senate. Senator K. Patterson was one of the, the leaders. The African-American caucus in the House didn't like it, but mm. the Senate is the Senate. And once the flag was moved and it very carefully was not the naval jack, the mistaken rectangular flag that had been flown for so long, it was the flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, Senator Glenn McConnell made sure that it was correct. Describing that ceremony when it came down, I was asked on air, do you think it'll come off the ground? And I said, again, not in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I really did not think that it would happen. There'd be the political will to make it occur.
1: Well, you also have to remember the last time a Republican governor of South Carolina Mm -hmm. attempted to, to even address the flag, he lost Yep. Governor Beasley lost that election. Um, and, you know, the, the so-called compromise of 2000 was in the midst of a presidential election. Mm-hmm. It, was in the midst of a, it was in the aftermath of a very successful uh, mass demonstration organized by the NAACP and the National Urban League and others that really brought national attention to this, to this matter in ways that really had not occurred before. And, you know, in 2000, we saw that as a, a major page-turner. Mm-hmm. in some respects, so that 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 probably was a new chapter in South Carolina history. But the reality, of course, is that the same issues that were that sort of symbolized by the flag persisted and, and I think continue to persist. Likewise, the the matter of the Confederate flag being removed from the State House, if you look at all the other sort of issues that Professor Cobb has just outlined that continue to matter for those who call for the flag coming down, whether it's health care, mass incarceration, I mean, those are issues which st- continue to, in some ways, harness the South um, and South Carolina, that you know, it, once those matters are addressed in any significant way, then, then you might want to rewrite your, your book.
0: Well, it's, it's amazing the, the good feeling that, for example, the folks of Alaska got, by changing the name of the Wade Hampton Voting District precinct, they, they got real, look what a good people we are, I mean, it's all of a sudden anybody with a Southern name, no matter what, is those folks, that, you know, the pointing of the fingers. And, of course, Yale has got a tremendous issue dealing with Calhoun College.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you followed the debate on that issue in in the national media, there's considerable divide. There are African-American alumni who think it needs to stay there so that people understand Yale's participation in part of American history. In fact, they've uncovered about seven other prominent alumni who were slaveholders and the fact that Yale was named for a man who was involved in the Indian slave trade. So once you start digging, where do you stop? Well, I think that's a a good point.
2: First of all, I want to say, Walter, that the fact that all this happened, did happen in your lifetime is, is to some extent, a tribute to your clean living. But I, I would have said the same thing, by the way. But, you know, I, I do think the, the point about Yale is particularly uh, telling because it comes down to a, a concern that I have, and that is that you know, while I, I don't think the Confederate battle flag had any business flying in or around a, a municipal or state facility, I do think that there there's a point where sort of going all out to deconfederatize the South's landscape, it, it's akin to the Yale situation in that, that, you know, you're going to finally lose reminders of what it was that had to be overcome. And, you know, as a historian, what we're talking about uh, is, is basically making symbolic moves, you know, in the real world that we would never tolerate in a textbook. You know, we would scream... To high heaven about uh, you know taking away discussions of the brutality of slavery or or the the realities of disfranchisement and and segregation, but we somehow sort of take it for granted that that we won't be doing the same thing if we just remove a flag or an offensive monument here and there.
1: I think we should keep digging. And we should still keep sort of retelling and uh, revising accounts. I mean, I believe that there is reason for, and this puts me on a slippery slope, the the monument to Ben Tillman Mm -hmm. on the State House grounds should probably remain. Mm -hmm. It should be given a new interpretation. Mm -hmm. And maybe you should put the monument of Benjamin Mays next to him Mm -hmm. from Greenwood. I think part of it is you want we're always retelling the stories. And I think if you read the placard, if you read the inscription on the monument to Ben Tillman that's in front of the State House now, it reflects the history of Ben Tillman written at the time when the monument was put there. It is inaccurate. It is incomplete. And I think if we want to revisit the monuments there or elsewhere, that we might want to offer some more balanced interpretation of the lives of these individuals.
2: Well, you know, I think Bobby's point, uh, is is very good in the sense of, of uh, you know the one answer is is I think juxtapositions and really you know the, the South history racial history is really all about juxtapositions you know and conflict obviously but if you had Benjamin Mays beside Ben Tillman you know you're showing that there are two versions of the South' history and we need to be aware to uh, of both of them uh, in the same way that I think that you know, having, having the Stone Mountain Carving and the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta uh, provides you know, a similar juxtaposition. Or, or say in the Maryland State Capitol where uh, the statue of Thurgood Marshall is, is uh, close to the statue of Roger B. Taney who's, who said that black people have no rights. A white man is, is bound to respect. So, you know, I, I think the the answer here is 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 less about completely stripping away the Confederate detritus than, you know, sort of
1: supplementing it with new symbols that offer an alternative perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we see this in some ways. I remember taking a group of students on a trip to uh, Alabama several years ago, and it was really jarring to see that one of the taglines in the promotional material for Alabama was the heart of the Confederacy and the birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement, sort of juxtaposed together.
0: Right. If, for example, there was to be an explanatory plaque at Ben Tillman's monument, and we need to remember that by state law, it takes two-thirds votes of both houses of the General Assembly to alter any monument on the state house. Now, we should
1: remember, this was the Heritage Act that was put in place during the debate about the Confederate flag. Yes,
0: in, in 2000. But if you were to have such a plaque, Governor Tillman is responsible for the founding of Clemson and Winthrop. He is also responsible for the founding of South Carolina State. Yes. And to he be, was also an art and champion of white supremacy. Abso- yes. Yes. Which is why South Carolina State came into existence right. so that there'd be no chance that black students might go to either Carolina or to Clemson. In fact they couldn't, the Clemson will said it was for white males only. Mm-hmm. So that's part of his story. And he made no bones about it. I think that's one of the ironies if you read and I think it's still the best biography, Francis Butler Simpkins pitchfork Ben Tillman, Tillman didn't apologize for anything he did. And most of it is a part of the congressional record, as well as his speeches that were were published. So he was a very complicated man in some ways, but it is part of where we have come from. And I don't know what is accomplished, as Jim would say, if you do anything with, with the Tillman statue.
1: Mm-hmm. I do think the, the the entire debate about the flag, is, it does invite some real scrutiny into what we sort of profess to be the history of the South. I mean, one of the big arguments about the among those who champion the flag, is that here we are sort of pulling down an honorable symbol of Southern history or Southern heritage, and no one sees that as a problematic statement. Uh, or to see that there is, and I think that actually has actually happened, in, certainly in South Carolina, is that, you know, whether or not people are paying attention or listening to the details, more facts about how the flag emerged on the grounds of the State House, how it emerged in the General Assembly. I mean, those details are coming out further. So when you look at the very influential senator from Union, John D. Long, uh, who helped to orchestrate the placement of the Confederate flag, battle flag, in the uh, House and Senate chambers of the South Carolina General Assembly, an ardent segregationist who made no apologies about that. did John May in the House. Indeed. But so it goes back into when people who challenged a flag and see it at its core to be a symbol of white supremacy, there is sufficient record, if you're looking for it, that underscores that position. And I think a lot of people did not necessarily see all the dots connecting that even those who championed the Confederacy and wanted to pay honorable respect to their ancestors, in the same breath, saw the flag as an internal symbol of white supremacy.
2: I think think, uh, what you guys are saying is really uh, here in Georgia, the— the Confederate battle flag insignia was added to the state flag in 1956 at the, the most heated point in the massive resistance movement. And, uh, and it was done, that was done, by the way, over the objections of the sons of Confederate veterans and the United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, who in Georgia and elsewhere you know, also, of course, uh, were mortified to see the Klan start to wave the battle flag or, or even, uh, even Strom Thurmond. In 1948, but but there is, I think what, I think what Bobby is saying is that there has been, you know, just this sort of willful suspension of disbelief, as they say, about the battle flags association with, with you know, racial brutality and white supremacy. And I think it's a terrible statement that it, something like this had to happen to, to sort of jar people out of that, or at least jar a lot of people out of that mindset. Uh, in that the the, you know, the killings in in Charleston and the and the killers you know sort of almost worshipful attitude toward the uh, the Confederate battle flag just just made it very very difficult for a lot of uh, of people to hang on to the idea that somehow uh, regardless of what you might have wanted the battle flag to mean it has a meaning that cannot be separated from that, and that meaning is, uh, you know, hatred of black people and repression of black people. And and so I think uh, this incident, it's, it, you know, sort of proved critical. And, and you know, as you were talking, uh, Governor Haley was a year ago was preaching an entirely different message. But this is just one of those kind of galvanizing kinds of incidents that it, that it sometimes takes to, to make people see the light.
1: Yeah, I think it's sobering for sort of academic historians. I mean, I remember as the flag was uh, being removed from the top of the State House 15 years ago, there was an effort by Ch- Charles John and others where we signed a sort of petition calling for a different interpretation of the flag's history. And, you know, there, that, that was done. Uh, but not many people paid attention, <laughs> the general public. And I think these moments, the, the regrettable moments of Charleston, sort of galvanizes that discussion in ways that no historian Mm -hmm. could have achieved. I mean, when you think about the very powerful speech by Representative Jenny Horn Mm -hmm. from the Low Country, and and sort of she talked about this awakening in her own mind to kind of see that people saw history from different angles and different perspectives. That was not obvious, clearly, before the events of Mother Emanuel.
0: Well, reading the local newspapers, every day there were letters to the editor one way or the other, but people realized that symbols do matter, Mm. and what had happened in South Carolina was important.
1: Well, we should also remember, uh, I mean, mean, recent events just proved the point, that there is no coffin being buried here as it relates to the Confederate flag. During the entire debate, as the flag was being debated in the state house, I was away in in central Florida, and at the very same moment, the day or two after the flag came down, there was a big pro-flag rally in Ocala, Florida, very recently, another big rally in, in Myrtle Beach. Uh, and so even though the flag has come down on the state House grounds, the art and champions have, have not sort of given in. One
0: thing is interesting, and Jim mentioned the flag, at, uh, the Georgia state flag. Of course, the Mississippi state flag is very much reminiscent of the Confederacy, the Stars and Bars. But so is the Florida flag, and nobody ever mentions that. It's the St. Andrew's Cross, white flag, with the red X with the state seal.
1: Or if you even look at the current Georgia flag, I mean, I remember the battle flag as a child growing up in Augusta I mean, and not really realizing at the time what it meant historically. And then when you look at the current well, Georgia flag, which is the Compromise, it also has Confederate roots.
2: Yeah, that, that Bobby, I think that's one of the most intriguing things because the the, the current Georgia flag, which is actually, uh, you know, to correct the misnomer, is is actually the stars and bars and, you know, was pretty much almost a replica of the United States flag. This is the flag of a nation founded, as the vice president of the Confederacy and Alexander Stevens said, on the cornerstone of slavery. And yet that flag can prove less offensive than the Confederate battle flag. And, of course, we I think we understand that in addition to... Confederate battle flags association with a, a war to, to defend slavery, it's subsequent associations with the, with the Klan and, uh, and various white supremacist groups and skinheads and Nazis and, and what have you uh, have, have simply uh, tainted it to the point that it's just not acceptable to a broad uh, slice of the population. Uh, Walker Percy, who managed to see the flag prior to all this, prior to it, it being sort of co-opted as as a symbol of valor and uh, courage in defense of what seemed to, to the uh, the soldiers a legitimate cause, said something to the effect that once it was taken up by the segregationists and the the Klan and uh, what have you, that you may as well you know make panties out of it or uh, or, or use it for a pillow because you know it it had
0: lost its uh, its significance as a, as a positive symbol. Actually, Jim, I, I think maybe you mentioned it earlier with the, with the Georgia flag, but most Southern states, and I know South Carolina and Alabama, had laws on the books that if you disre- there was disrespect shown to either the American flag or the Confederate flag, and they were really referring to the battle flag, those were jail offenses. This is when people were coming out with beach towels in the 19th The Confederate patriotic groups, the daughters and the sons, tried to get people arrested for disrespect to the flag, and it didn't. It went out into the, to the wide world, and as our mutual friend John Chantel-Reed will tell you, groups that could describe themselves as rebels in Europe Used the Confederate. It's the naval jack that they use, the rectangular mm-hmm. flag.
2: Well, yeah, and I think that's you know that that's a sort of an example of sort of decontextualizing the the symbol, which I would suggest will probably make it more difficult in the future for for groups who are not sort of hardcore, Aryan supremacists or or anti-Semites and the like to continue to use that flag because it it has you know it this has been a, certainly a big enough event to to gain uh, quite a bit of exposure around the world and and uh, I think it's it's going to be a little bit more controversial s- symbol uh, you know Don Doyle writes about seeing the uh, battle flag or maybe it's the union jack version you're talking about Walter but at soccer games in in uh, Naples and having explained to him that in southern Italy they they relate to it because northerners uh, the, the northern region I'm sorry of, of, of Italy sort of took over and came down and stole all the wealth out of the South and you know it sort of sounds it, it, it becomes kind of a narrative similar to the ones we've always heard about the family silver being stole by the Yankees
0: all right gentlemen we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgars journal and I'm talking with Professor Jim Cobb at the University of Georgia and Professor Bobby Donaldson of the University of South Carolina about where are we now with the symbolism of the removal of the Confederate flag from the statehouse grounds. Gentlemen, as we're discussing the Confederate flag and what people refer to as the Confederate flag, we all know that there are different Confederate flags. I think we need to start with the three national banners of the Confederacy, the so-called stars and bars, red and white stripes, a quarter blue with the circle of stars. That was discarded, and it was replaced with what they call the second national banner, sometimes called the stainless banner, which was a white flag. But then the quadrant was what we now would consider the battle flag, mm-hmm. the Southern Cross. Because it was all white, it looked like a flag of surrender. And so, it actually, in the last days of the Confederacy, they added a large red stripe down the side of the flag so that it would not be mistaken. But by the time the Confederate Congress adopted that flag, Sherman had already marched through Georgia and South Carolina, so it didn't really make much difference. The flag that was flying by the Confederate monument in Columbia South Carolina was the flag used by the army of northern virginia and occasionally it was used in tennessee but it originated with the army of northern virginia it was popularly used but it was never officially adopted by the confederate army or by the confederate government the version that appears today in all of the, in the souvenir shops where it's still being sold the rectangular southern cross was actually a naval flag so you're dealing with five different flags of the confederacy the army of northern virginia flag with the white border that was the official army's flag not what people think of as quote the confederate flag
2: i think it's interesting uh if, you know if you you look at this we are we are talking about symbolism and and of course is as we all know the the reason the stars and bars had to be gone from the battlefield was that it, it looked too much like the United States flag, which, of course, it was you know, sort of copied from. But the the fact that the the military cause in the South, the popularity of of the of, of the military aspect of of the Confederacy, so much uh, so greatly eclipsed you know any sort of affinity for the Confederate nation per se or the Confederate government certainly that. The the battle flag was much more meaningful across the populace uh, and back on the home front than the national flag, and uh, to me that's always suggested maybe that if you try to sort of separate the political commitment of the Confederate citizenry from the military, you'll find out that the you know the military commitment dwarfed the other. It was it was all about sort of you know resisting and and fighting the Yankees and considerations of what you know the, the Confederacy was supposed to mean beyond that never seemed to to get much traction.
0: Of course, South Carolina was actually the center of opposition to the government in Richmond. There was only one newspaper by 1863 in the state that actually supported Jefferson Davis who was, until the way he was treated after the war, he was pretty much anathema here in South Carolina. James Henry Hammond called for him to be impeached. People wanted to have a new Confederate constitutional convention because they thought Richmond and Davis were uh, trampling on their liberties. So Jim maybe you you have something there.
1: Yeah, and Walter, I also think the the broader public, perhaps those who don't listen to your your radio show or, or, or on this network are they're not mindful of those nuances that you just described. The Confederate battle flag Kind of gets legs of his own long after the Civil War, and so I think part of that—that that is what's explaining it. for those who are the critics of the flag continuing to fly. The bottom line emerges that this was a symbol uh, predicated upon the exploitation of individuals, a symbol even during war championing slavery, uh, and so it really didn't matter what flag was being flown, the sentiment was, was commonly understood. You know, and I'm personally invested in this in, to some degree beyond my kind of uh, work as a historian uh, because I'm, I've been constantly reading about the 1st uh, South Carolina Cavalry. And I'm particularly interested in it because between August of 1861 and April of 1865, uh, there was this gentleman named Alex Williams who served uh, in this outfit, And he was my great-great-grandfather. He was what we call a black Confederate. Uh, And what I do know about him is that he was, long after the war, he emerges as one of the champions of the Republican Party in what is now Aiken County. And he becomes a victim of the Ellington Riot in the 1870s. And, you know, he he was a part of the Confederate Army. He was a servant. He was brought there by his owners. And yet somehow or another when we talk about the Confederacy, his perspective, his voice, his experiences seems to be kind of put to the margins. And so there's only sort of one angle that we talk about the Confederacy when obviously there is a much more complicated story.
0: And so here was actually a Confederate veteran who was – was he killed at the no, – he,
1: No, he was not. He survived. He survived. To the, to, to the dismay – Of the Wade Hampton champions, the the, the red-shirters. However, it's interesting that this was never – I never knew this until I became a professor. And we were out doing research at the South Carolina Archives, and I just happened to come across his pension file where he marks his name with an X and receives for the next four or five years, as long as he's living, a small pension, provided that his services were vouched by notable citizens of Aiken County.
0: Which they obviously did. They did. All right. So, how did your family react to this historical discovery?
1: Not, not much reaction, because I think uh, the we knew his story beyond that, and we knew that you know he developed. He later became a very successful landowner, mm-hmm. um, but you know, no one fully understood what he endured uh, during that four-year span, um, and I fully don't know. You know, I know he served along with two brothers who were from the the Barnwell district. Uh, but beyond that, that's all we know, that he ultimately received a pension. During the time of the reign of, uh, of, of the Red Shirters, here is a Confederate veteran who served, who received a pension, who is directly targeted for daring to register people to vote, for daring to find equitable distribution of land. Uh, so he is one of those Reconstruction figures uh, who, has, who becomes targeted by those redeemers, who want to maintain white supremacy at whatever cost.
2: I had a sort of similar story in my family. Uh, I'd really, up until 15 or 20 years ago, never felt a particular personal stake in the war or the the Confederate effort until uh, I received a copy of um, a request from my great-great-grandfather for the the, uh, discharge of his... uh, The youngest of his two sons who uh, uh, had gone off with his older brother and enlisted underage in the Confederate Army. And um, as it turned out, the the older brother had died of measles, I think, uh, before he ever saw combat. But the younger brother was at home on furlough in uh, January of 1862. So my ancestor petitions, Judah P. Benjamin, for his discharge, and of course the discharge never comes, and uh, he, he reports back and uh, is uh, killed at uh, Sharpsburg that September, and recently I started looking into my uh, uh, the, the Athens branch of my Cobb family, and uh, uh, it started to dawn on me that, that Thomas Reed Roots, TRR Cobb, and Howell Cobb were two of the leading advocates of secession and were running around assuring everybody there'd be no war. So it was uh, within my own family, there was uh, this example of uh, a rich man's war and a poor man's fight.
1: Yeah, I think these these, these both examples, I think, underscore the point that we have to be careful when we use this phrase, Southern heritage that it is a complicated term. There are multiple phases. There are multiple Souths. There are multiple people who have different, very different, jarring perspectives. I mean, one of the things that has happened in the aftermath of Mother Emanuel that happened in South Carolina was uh, a black nationalist organization and elements of the KKK of North Carolina on the same day gather on the State House grounds. And it's obvious that without very strong law enforcement, we would have seen a much more uh, convulsive occasion than what transpired. And here you have two groups uh, propelled by very different motivations who present very different perspectives about the South, its history, and its future.
0: And it's all too easy to do the broad brush, and everybody is one way right. or another. Well,
2: you know, I I think that's it. When you talk about what the Civil War was about, you know, they, there's a difference in in what the war was about for the people who made it, who you know caused it to happen, and the people who actually fought in it. You know, I mean, you you find soldiers' diaries, and and you know, you can find all kinds of stirring passages about you know why why I'm out here fighting and what I'm fighting for, but you know, you you rarely ever sort of get anything that's not pretty darn uplifting. You know, you don't say. Uh, very few people say, "Well, I'm fighting to keep those 20 slaves my daddy owns," or "I'm fighting to keep my family the wealthiest in the in the county." Uh, you know, they they talk about. State rights, or they, or they talk about fighting for their their families, or their or their fellow soldiers, and uh, so it really making the uh, just a, a sort of a sweeping statement about you know what the war was about, or why Southerners, uh, white Southerners, went to war is also something I think we should be a little bit more careful about. And
1: it's interesting because you have just almost different eras of history being sort of, sort of embraced or emphasized. So some of the strident champions of the flag, Confederate battle flag, they're championing what occurred or what they thought occurred in 1861. But there are those who oh. are critics who are talking about what happened in 1961 when the flag was used for a very different purpose. And in most minds, there was no doubt that the flag at that time stood for segregation. It, would, it goes up to mark the centennial, At the very same time, you have student demonstrations and sit-ins all across the Deep South.
0: And actually in Columbia in front of the State House.
1: Yes, absolutely. One of the most famous— Within weeks. Yes. Within weeks of the flag being placed on top of the rotunda, there was a famous uh, State House demonstration on March 2, 1961, where over 300 students from across South Carolina uh, engaged to register their their discontent. Mm -hmm. Those are are their words— with the General Assembly and its continued embrace of segregation. And they're all arrested, uh, 180 of them are arrested, and that case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court and is ruled in their favor in 1963 called Edwards v. South Carolina. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's also interesting in the debate on the flag, what got lost was, for example, what Robert E. Lee said after the war. He didn't believe in flying the flag. The great or the poem that was used at Confederate observances in my lifetime in Mobile, The Conquered Banner by Abram Ryan, talked about fold that banner. Furl that banner. Which is exactly, of course, what happened. I thought it was very interesting that the ceremony on the State House grounds, they furled the banner. Mm-hmm. So
1: well, that all makes sense if you're talking about the Battle of 1861, 1865. Mm-hmm. But again, the flag has this new emergence in the mid-20th century that is for, for different reasons, I mean, for different purposes. And so even though the General Lee made that statement, John D. Long did not believe in it. And he, and, and, or I remember this courtly lawyer when I'm, I'm from Augusta. When I was a child, we drove past his office every day. His name was Rora V. Harris. And all I knew at the time was he was a courtly old lawyer had no idea that he was former Speaker of the House, had no idea that he was one of the champions of the White Citizens Council. And in 1951 or 52, he's very clear the Confederate flag now means white supremacy.
0: I don't think there's any doubt of, th- of that. And if if you look at the publication of Harper Lee's first book, mm-hmm. uh, which has just come out, which has raised all sorts of questions, and it's pretty, I think it's brought to attention that the white citizens' council was supposedly, quote, the respectable people, but they tolerated and encouraged those who were in the Klan. Yeah, I also
2: think something that's interesting about that book is the number of people who have vowed they're not going to read it because they refuse to give up uh, their you know, more or less pristine image of Atticus Finch. Uh, Atticus is a symbol to them, in in the way that the flag is assembled to a lot of people, uh, and and they just refuse to see that it has any kind of kind of flawed attachments or any blemishes. And uh, uh, the, so the, so the reaction coming from the other side of the political spectrum, you know, about about Atticus strikes me as quite similar.
1: And I, I you know I'm, I'm struggling with this this new new release also because in the high school play To Kill a Mockingbird, this professor wanted to be Atticus Finch, and I was. Hmm. Um, And so here we have a a very different uh, or or a different angle about, you know, his personality, his motivations, and how he sees the future of the South and the future of racial relations.
0: Professor Trudier Harris, for many years up at Chapel Hill, in a program we did uh, Take on the South, she stood up before a national PBS audience and said, To Kill a Mockingbird was the most important Southern book written.
2: Well, I think it. I think it was certainly, you know, in terms of uh, its impact uh, at the time it appeared, of, you know, you could you could really make that argument because it, it comes at a time when when the national awareness is really just, you know, we look back and we think that people were outraged across the country for, for generations about what was going on in the south, but that's you know that's really not true, obviously, and I think uh, the combination of, of sort of Telling that story of what a you know a black man accused of a crime was up against, but also what uh, just a decent white fellow trying to represent him was up against, and the very fact that there there were decent white fellows you know who would do that it just said things that that really need to be
1: said at that point, Bobby well you know one of the things i'm I am I am mindful of is so when you think about the the legacy of those who were killed and I say assassinated and, and, and Mother Emanuel, and this is why I'm, I'm I am I'm more than mindful that there is much more work for us to do that we can pause for a moment and we can celebrate the bringing down of the Confederate flag in front of the State House. Uh, however, if you remember someone like Senator Clemente Pinckney, who I met 20 years ago as a young student when he was at Allen University. Uh, he comes from a county, Jasper County. Um, and if there's ever a call uh, for us to, to be mindful of the famous corridor of shame, we should, people should visit Senator Pinckney's district. I mean, here is a great county, but struggling. Uh, and sort of every indicator that, that sort of shows that we have some real socioeconomic challenges in South Carolina and in the, in the Deep South Jasper reveals that in some very glaring ways, and I think if ever there is uh, a tribute to someone like Pinckney, we we need to think about those issues and how do you improve the lives and the futures uh, of the citizens of, of a district like his. Well, I think also you know, there's a tendency because there,
2: you know uh, all of us know that you know, we haven't accomplished nearly what we should have and nearly what what we want to. Uh, but I think there's a tendency to actually sort of by default not give enough credit to the, the importance of having black people represented in a minority but a significant minority in, in the state legislature and, and in sometimes often in majorities in local communities. I think that's a, you know, that, that's a factor in, in so many ways uh, you know, with the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act it's been for so long people have been saying, well, you know the, like just like the first reconstruction, the civil rights movement, the second reconstruction really failed to establish much in the terms of a, an economic foundation for for black people. but there's a ton of evidence to the contrary that saw communities you know, actually you know revitalize not just black majority communities by having uh, a greater black presence on, county commission city councils having a black mayor that you know it sort of re-energized and 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 it brought more people into sort of owning the system or or feeling a part of the system than had been the uh, the case before and and therefore there was more interest in public affairs and uh, ways to better the community so Uh, I think that in itself is is not only a tribute to uh, the Voting Rights Act, but to people like uh, Mr. Pinckney.
0: Well, gentlemen, I think we've talked about it some. This whole question of Southern identity, we've talked about it's complicated. And Jim, I know this is where you have talked about the South, if it hadn't, been there it would have been created because the south was treated as the other created as the other and i must confess that as i read newspapers out of out of the state and and online the last couple of weeks or actually since the the horror in charleston i read an awful lot of finger pointing that you know only this only this could only happen in the south
2: well yeah i think that the the thing about it is you know you can complain about yankee stereotypes but uh There's never been a a shortage of of people in the South who've uh, been willing to confirm those stereotypes, and all you need uh, is is a single incident, you know, to to kind of verify generations of of misimpressions and misconceptions about, you know, the the majority of of southerners white or black. So, I mean, there
0: there is that... Yeah, All right. see, this, this is one of the questions that I'd like for Bobby to, to think about, it, is that when people say Southerners, they're thinking white Southerners. They're not thinking black Southerners. In South Carolina, for more of its history, it has been a black majority state than it has been a white majority state or colony. Charles Jordan has dealt with this. Jim, you've dealt with this. The interaction, the shared traditions, shared history, it's there, So I know historians now have been very careful to say when they talk about, you know, Southerners are black or white. They don't just mean white Southerners. But I particularly got this impression from the media when they were talking about Southerners. They were not including those who were killed at Mother Emanuel as being somehow they weren't Southern.
1: Right. I think think part of it is, I mean, and Jim mentioned this, you know, the voting rights bill that led to the election of African-Americans and numbers that were unprecedented—that's recent history, mm-hmm. and and we're seeing some 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 backtracking mm-hmm. on that to some degree. So I think part of it is, you know, in the recent time, as a consequence of the civil rights movement, African Americans, who in some districts were the majority, have now greater influence, greater public political voice, and so historically, the white the the South generally meant those who were in power. But I think we all know that there is a much more complicated sort of demographic profile of the South. You should remember that in in one of the remarks I found really uh, interesting in President Obama's eulogy for Mm -hmm. Senator Pinckney in Charleston was he said, this is not a time for another race commission, another racial dialogue when usually that is the response. Let's pull together a task force. And I remember many years ago under Bill Clinton, we had a, a national task force on race Led by the esteemed historian John Hope Franklin, that put forward a white paper that talked about ways to improve racial relations, increase dialogue. It's almost like that's an artifact of the past now. Very few people remember that national issue, and I think part of what we're reminded of, and I, I think all the incidents around the country before Mother Emanuel, what Jim mentioned, those were else, those were beyond the so-called Mason-Dixon line issues of pro- police brutality and uh, and other violations. And somehow or another, the problem of the race, the problem of the color line, as Du Bois called it, we seem to overlook the fact that this is a challenge for the nation. Now, clearly, the South has a vested interest in helping to fix this matter. But uh, this is an issue that transcends the former Confederacy, in in my judgment.
2: Well, you know, I think, uh, Bobby, you alluded to the efforts to sort of roll back the uh, voting rights at that uh, it, what's striking to me is that in the last five or six years there have been, uh, by my count, 22 states that have managed to put legislation on the books that basically is likely to reduce minority turnout, but only eight of those are in the South. So the you know the the idea I was interested that the 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 ongoing case in North Carolina that the NAACP attorneys were characterizing it as our Selma but you know in, you know in this case uh, there are a bunch of Jim Clark's who who, who are not in Mon- not in Montgomery or Selma and I, I think it, it it sort of shows the the impact of this this just lingering perception of southern otherness. I'm, I think I've, I've said before that if you know the, I think probably the greatest disservice that the South the white, South has done to the rest of the country has been in providing this, this alternative image that, that allows the rest, people in the rest of the country to, to ignore their own flaws and focus on uh, the flaws of a single region.
1: Yeah. And Walter, it's interesting. If you look at the demographic shifts, if you think about the hot topic debate of immigration that's happening presently, you know, think about it. If you have based your life on being white— and being a white American, and that is the core of your identity, those days are now numbered. I mean, the nation is changing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, we see these historical shifts happening. And, it, and, and when these shifts happen, we see tensions emerge. Mm-hmm. And we see individuals, citizens, trying to reconcile what is a, almost kind of a, a, a loss of balance mm-hmm. in some respects. And I think that's where we see some of the most telling tensions emerging. And so I go back to this moment of the battle in front of the state house between... The new Black Panther Party, and the KKK, which was, you know, it was it was a, it was a sort of a built-up boxing match that was not altogether what I imagined it to be. I mean, the Klan is surely with us, uh, but what it is now is 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 in some ways, and maybe this is my own sort of prophetic thinking, a dying breed. I mean, they may be reconstituting themselves in different ways, uh, but the, the 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 teeth that once the Klan I think exercised the bite is not as strong. And I think for some people <laughs> that's very disturbing.
0: All right. Gentlemen, Alfred is giving me the wrap-up sign. Jim Cobb, any last words before we sign off today?
2: I think one of the big questions that may come out of this whole flag business is whether or not finally the vocal minority of hardcore stand patterns have finally been sort of revealed as as just that a a minority and that this is a case study in whether the fact that white politicians in one southern state are willing to sort of defy this very vocal, aggressive minority, will that seem be recreated across the rest of the South. All right. Bobby?
1: Yeah, one of the things I would just stress, even though I, I see the—I the, the, argue the Klan is on its decline, that champions of white supremacy remain. And the case in Charleston, the tragic killing of those nine— and the young man being accused and the ideology that fed in his thought suggests that there are, and, and it's what I find, here is a young man so young for whom the Confederacy, the Civil War, are just something learned either at the kitchen table or in a textbook. And yet the vehemence that you see exercised and there uh, reminds us that there's much more work to do if 20-year-olds if 20 are sort of buying into this uh, these these yeah. false notions. At-
0: and of course, in his case, it seems to be the internet may have been, right, even more powerful than what. We well, well the
1: internet probably has more influence in our history books, Walter. Oh, I, <laughs> alas, Do I don't
0: dis—I don't disagree, <laughs> uh, gentlemen. I want to thank you for being with us today, Professor Bobby Donaldson of the University of South Carolina, and Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure, as always.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The American South is complicated, so is Southern heritage, and I think the conversations with Professor Jim Cobb and Professor Bobby Donaldson made that quite clear. The removal of the battle flag from the State House grounds at South Carolina was an important decision, it was important symbolically, but as Charles Joyner Another great Southern historian said, we may have come a way, but we still have a way to go. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina.
2: The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.